The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. We're still a month away from tallying all the damage to the state's avocado and lemon crops due to the Thomas Fire in Southern California. But what the experts have seen so far isn't good news. Will NAFTA be saved with a last-minute deal? The Secretary of Agriculture shares his views on that possibility. We look at the state of California's Christmas tree industry, a seasonal business that's a full-time job, but with an aging workforce. There's been a breakthrough in research in the battle against citrus greening disease. We have that story. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The wildfire that's roaring through the orchards of Ventura and Santa Barbara counties are hitting much of the region's lemon and avocado crops, not just with flames, but also with the fierce Santa Ana winds as well as a thick blanket of ash. However, it's too soon to know the extent of the damage to the upcoming avocado harvest. Ventura and Santa Barbara counties are the largest growing region for both lemons and avocados. The state produces about 90% of the nation's avocado crop, 80% of its lemons. Experts say even the most family-owned orchards spared by the epic fires may have suffered devastating losses to their crops from the hot, dry Santa Ana winds. Those winds knock avocados from the trees with gusts up to 80 miles an hour. Then the fruit can't be sold for human consumption once it's on the ground due to food safety regulations. Avocados are the rare produce trees planted in hillside groves because of their shallow roots, that according to a UC Farm Advisor in Ventura County. The fruit, typically harvested in February or March, is full-sized and heavy in December, and it's held by a long stem. The natural environment for avocados is Central and South America, but growing in Ventura and Santa Barbara County, it makes them more vulnerable to the whipping winds rather than the lemon orchards that dot the flatland areas. Lemons are a lighter fruit with a shorter, sturdier stem. And how are the avocado orchards faring in the Thomas Fire? A full report isn't in yet, but it doesn't look good. Jeff Dreyer grows avocados in the Carpinteria area of Santa Barbara County. He told KEYT Television News he thinks his 10 acres of avocados will help save his home from the wildfire. And you can see how moist this dirt is. It's got a, a thick layer of mulch and leaves underneath the bottom, and, and they're watered regularly. So that's like um, a sponge, and so the fire gets to a sponge full of water, and it really slows it down. It takes a long time for it to burn. Still, there's a lot of confusion about the benefits or the lack of benefits of having a buffer of avocado tree acreage. That according to Carpinteria homeowner Carter Hampton, who told KEYT Television News. A lot of people have been talking about the avocados. Uh, we've heard some people lost a lot of avocado trees. We live in between avocado orchards, so um, we've, we've heard conflicting things. Avocado orchards do burn. They don't burn. Everything burns. Some avocado trees that do not appear to have been scorched could also reveal damage later, collapsing from internal heat damage. Fruit that did not burn or get blown off the branches may be sunburned by the loss of canopy protection. Both lemon and avocado crops are also likely to suffer further from the thick coating of ash left by the Thomas fire that interferes with the beneficial insects that hunt the pests feeding on those fruit trees. And according to one farm advisor, that's going to cause a disruption that's going to go on for a year or more, so the impact of the fires will not be immediate. 
There is a bit of good news. Unlike grapes at wineries in California's Napa and Sonoma Valley's wine-growing regions hit by wildfires in October, avocados and lemons will not be affected by smoke from the fires due to their thick skins. Wine experts said at the time that the delicate grapes, if exposed to sustained heavy smoke, could be vulnerable to a condition known as smoke taint, which can alter their taste as well as their aroma. And there are those who dispute that. Now, what about avocado prices in the future? Well, consumers aren't expected to see an impact on those prices because Ventura and Santa Barbara counties are only a small piece of the worldwide production chain dominated by Mexico and South America. Avocado prices have been higher in most U.S. markets during the second half of 2017. That's due in part to a poor harvest last year in both the United States and Mexico. Reuters News contributed to this report. 2017 may end up with the national farm income numbers slightly above 2016, but will still be below all other years since 2009 and 10. That's the gist of Wednesday's new USDA farm income forecast. The increase from a year ago is small enough for the analysts to say instead that farm sector profits will be relatively stable this year. Net farm income expected to be $63.2 billion, up 2.7%. Net cash income, $96.9 billion. That will be 3.9% higher than 2016. But analysts say if you factor in inflation, those numbers are basically the same as 2016. Farm cash receipts will hit $365 billion. That's up 2.4%, mostly from a 7.6% hike in receipts for animal products. Crop receipts expected to be down 2%. Government payments down almost 14%. On top of that, after two years of falling production costs, USDA saying this year we'll see a 1.5% increase because of higher interest rates, higher labor, and energy costs. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. I think trade negotiations a little bit like the way I do Christmas. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue was responding to a reporter's question about ongoing NAFTA negotiations. You know, I do my shopping on the 24th. That's typically when these uh, negotiations get done in the last throws days of those negotiations. Everyone works better with a timeline when it comes to negotiation. He says all sides have laid out their positions and that even if they don't initially agree, they will find a way to negotiate and move forward. There are going to be some anxious moments for our agricultural producers across the country. At the end of the day, I do believe we will get an agreement over NAFTA. Canadian and Mexican officials meet with their American counterparts in Washington Monday for more NAFTA talks. Secretary Perdue is speaking at Florida A&M University, where he presided over a roundtable discussion on youth in agriculture. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Winter's off to a dry start across the entire western United States, raising the specter of ongoing drought in many locations. According to the News Deeply website, the culprit could be La Nina, a periodic cooling of Pacific Ocean waters near the equator that often brings drought. But La Nina is sort of a two-faced creature. Last year's La Nina, for example, was a rather wet year. However, the latest research is showing that La Nina can be very unpredictable. In a new study, researchers found that the second La Nina year is often drier than the first, even though the second La Nina year may be weaker and the drought-affected area may grow larger. And that's what the West is facing now, a second consecutive La Nina year and the prospect of reduced precipitation across California this winter. And the forecast for the remainder of December? Well, it's looking kind of dry. With more on the La Nina effect on the western United States, here's the USDA's Rod Bain. We're two months into the western winter water season. 
the time for recharging reservoirs and building up mountain snowpack accumulations for necessary ag irrigation and municipal water supplies. And according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, Early prospects are not all that favorable for the mountain snowpack. A large part of that has to do with the established La Nina weather pattern, with trademarks such as colder and wetter conditions in the northern tier of the west and drier conditions in the southern half. If you roughly draw a line from the Sierra Nevada in California and Nevada, northeastward to the Wind River Range in western Wyoming, areas north and west of that line have done reasonably well in terms of storminess and precipitation. Back to the Pacific Northwest and Northern Rockies in a moment. Rippey says right now there is plenty to be worried about concerning western water supply and soil moisture going into the spring and beyond. We have seen very little, if any, precipitation during the last two months since the wet season officially began on October 1st. And as a result, these areas remain critically dry. And yes, Rippey uses the D word drought. Certainly Southern California never has seen drought completely eradicated and this could be a sixth year of drought for parts of Southern California and at the same time areas that saw drought eradicated last winter during that impressive winter wet season of 2016-17 have now slid back into drought and could continue to do so in the four corner states. Meanwhile, parts of northern tier mountain chains, such as the Washington State Cascades and northern Rockies, report above average mountain snowpack so far in the higher elevations. The concern, though, according to Rippey, is what is happening in the mid to lower elevations. A lot of the precipitation has fallen as rain. That could come back to haunt the northwest if this pattern continues. That is, we get storms, but they're not very cold, as we would head into the spring months with a lack of mid-level snowpack that could translate into water supply concerns concerns even if fairly wet conditions continue. And forecast for La Nina to remain in place through April means for the West, especially in the southern tier, that it does not favor much if any relief as we head through the remainder of the winter. I'm Rod Payne reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. The cotton harvest is near completed. Growers continue to prep fields for fall planting of wheat, barley, and oats. Silage corn is growing well. The harvest is ongoing. Black-eyed beans are being harvested and processed. Recent rains have helped germinate planted forage. The apple harvest is near complete. Pruning continues in some stone fruit orchards, and old orchards were removed and prepared for replanting. Table grape harvest is almost finished. Some vineyards are being sprayed for weeds. Pomegranates, kiwi fruit, and persimmons are being harvested. Naval orange harvest is ongoing. Lemon, grapefruit, mandarin, and pomelo harvests are ongoing as well. Young citrus trees were bagged to protect them from frost. The extent of the impact of the Southern California wildfires and Santa Ana winds on avocado and citrus orchards has yet to be quantified. The almond and pistachio harvests are complete. Walnut harvest is nearly completed. Soil amendments are being applied in orchards. In the vegetable fields, Brussels sprouts are being harvested. Broccoli, carrots, and lettuce all have excellent stands for the winter season. Fall and winter vegetables are being harvested and available at roadside stands. Continued cultivating of organic garlic is ongoing. Fresh onion fields and tomato beds are being prepped for planting. Organic cantaloupe harvest has ended. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season grew nicely, with many fields starting to be harvested. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage quality continues to improve, with north and central state locations reporting fair to poor conditions. Earlier rains and warm weather stimulated germination and foothill range as well as non-irrigated fields are showing some green. 
Dairy workers were cleaning out corrals in preparation for winter. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Sheep grazed idle cropland, stubble fields, as well as in dormant alfalfa. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. A couple more notes about the fires down in Southern California and its effect on avocado groves. The Ag Alert newspaper reports that any groves destroyed by the flames will need a long time to return to production, as long as seven years, according to the Ventura County Ag Commissioner Henry Gonzalez. And another fact of wildfire life in farms and orchards, as seen in Northern California's fires in Sonoma and Napa County, drip irrigation lines melt from a wildfire. Many of the growers, if not all, down south have gone to more efficient micro-sprinklers for their lemons and avocados. They're all plastic, so they are now gone. Growers right now are working to restore the irrigation to help these very thirsty trees at least have some water during the winter. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue took time during his visit at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Tuesday to highlight recent individual U.S. achievements related to ag trade. Some well-known. We succeeded in getting U.S. beef back into China for the first time in 13 years. We opened China to American rice for the first time ever. We got U.S. pork back into Argentina for the first time since 1992. And some that perhaps have not been as well publicized on a national level. Japan expanded market access for U.S. chipping potatoes for the first time in 11 years. Vietnam notified the U.S. that it will resume imports of U.S. distillers dried grain. The secretary noted the part this increased market access played in making fiscal year 2017 the third highest ag export year on record, and its potential role in making FY18, if current forecasts hold up, the fourth highest ag export year on record. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Shoppers have reported reduced supplies and higher prices at Christmas tree lots this season, but California's Choose and Cut Tree Farms say they have plenty of trees available. The California Christmas Tree Association says steady plantings at Choose and Cut Farms have allowed growers to maintain their inventories. Growers say prices for Choose and Cut Trees may have gone up a bit due to increased production costs. Well, it's that time of year again when Christmas trees take the spotlight. But do you know how Christmas trees are grown? Well, of course. Well, we know who grows them. Christmas tree farmers, many of whom have been in the business for many, many years. And for farmers in general, Tom Vilsack has for years made this point. We've got an aging farm population. And it's true, especially for Christmas tree farmers, because... We just don't have the number of young producers coming into the industry. Blake Rayfeld is a grower and past president of the National Christmas Tree Association. He says many of the folks who grow our Christmas tree started 30 to 40 years ago. And many of them do not have a second or third generation to take over the farm. Example, the owner of the Virginia tree farm that I go to every year is Jim Gelson. He's getting on up there in years and has been growing trees for over 33 years and he told me. I've got a daughter and four boys. Oh good, then you've got somebody to take over the farm, right? No, uh uh-uh. They don't want anything to do with the farm work. Wow, well, that's not good. So what's going to happen to this beautiful farm if you're not able to keep on doing it yourself someday? Well, we'll wait and see what happens when we get there. Uh, well, that's a little scary, isn't it? 
Yeah. <laughs> he laughs about that, but it's no laughing matter. Census figures show the number of Christmas tree growers dropping from 20,000 to 15 years ago to about 12,000 a day, prompting Pennsylvania tree farmer Jay Bustard to say again, I think we need to encourage younger people to get into the business. Blake Rayfeld says that's easier said than done. He says part of the decline in grower numbers is older people getting out of the business. Some of it is consolidation. You know, we used to be an industry of many small producers, but those small producers have gone out, others have bought them, and the bigger have gotten bigger. And that is true in everything in business. And the middle has been driven out as has the small producer. Making it doubly tough to get started in the Christmas tree business. Like all of agriculture, if you aren't within it to begin, if you aren't already on the farm producing and have an easy route into it, it'd be very difficult to accumulate the capital and land to be able to to produce anything in agriculture, particularly Christmas trees. Also because even if you get the land and the capital needed to start a tree business from scratch, you won't harvest and sell your first crop for eight to ten years. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Ginger Armstrong, co-owner of Snowy Peaks Christmas Tree Farm in Forestville and the past president of the California Christmas Tree Association, told the KSTE Farm Hour last December that finding new younger owners and operators for Christmas tree farms here in California is a challenge just like it is in other parts of the country. And that challenge, along with the drought, has led to a decline in Christmas tree acreage here. We're noticing that those of us who are farming are in our, our more mature years and it's getting harder and harder to find those are you know some of our children are not interested in it anymore um, or not interested in taking over so there will be unfortunately some decrease in acreage i anticipate our membership is down and not because we're not serving our members but because our members are not farming anymore and this makes me very sad and with no children to uh, pass the job on to, they too are looking for buyers. Exactly, exactly. And it's a wonderful thing to do, but it is hard work. You can't just, many people think you plant the trees and then go to the bank. And that is not, it's like any growing, any growing thing. It takes love and nurturing and uh, watching the weeds and watching the brush and uh, uh, animals. And, you know, it's, it's a constant job. So it's, it's a lot of work, and so you have to be dedicated to what you're doing. But the interaction with our customers makes my dedication grow every year. Now, you did not approach this job at a young age. This is basically your second career, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah, so we, I, gosh, we, this is our 18th Christmas. And um, so, yes, we started this in in our 50s, and um, but it's been, oh, it's such such a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Uh, people are happy to be here and um, giving and loving and, and uh, have a wonderful time, and it's, it's a wonderful occupation. What about succession? Is there somebody to take over Snowy Peaks after you decide to uh, go to your third profession? <laughs> um, we, we are looking for uh, the right people to love this farm the way we do, and we were the people that filled in for uh, when we bought the farm. Oh, that's a great expression. <laughs> um, when we purchased the farm, uh, the people that we purchased it from loved this farm and created it, actually. They created this farm from an eight-foot brush field, 
and um, they loved it so much, and they were very pleased that we love it as much as they did. And we are looking for somebody that's just exactly in that same category. Are you actively looking or hoping somebody comes along? Uh, not actively yet, although we're probably in the five to seven year range. Um, and, and not actively looking at this point, but just it, very interested to see what people say and, and think about the farm. Um, I had a, a, a lovely, cute little family come in yesterday, and um, we have a five-foot minimum, which is $40.25, and it, was, it became clear to me that that was going to be an issue with them, and I said, oh, you don't have to adhere to that. You can cut a shorter tree, and some other customers were standing beside me or nearby and heard the conversation. And when they came to pay for their tree, they paid for this family's tree. And he, uh, the family that received the free tree were so touched, and I was so touched. And the lady that paid for their tree said, well, when she was young, she had there were some issues in her family where things were not abundant. And now that they were for her, she wanted to pass it along. And it made my whole month. I imagine you get stories like that every year. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do. And and I was talking to a lady today that this is her 27th year here at this farm, which precedes me. And uh, so she's seen this farm change and grow, and uh, and she continues to come back. And I just love the loyalty. Like many others in the farming community, you have a passion for things that grow and the people you interact with, and you love doing what you do. Absolutely. And it's just so um, rewarding to produce a product that somebody else wants and values as much as I do. And that is, that is just tremendously rewarding. Ginger Armstrong, Snowy Peaks Tree Farm in Forest Hill. Thanks for a few minutes of your time, and happy holidays. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, too. There's more uncertainty regarding the Waters of the United States rule. In an effort to provide more time to reconsider a definition of Waters of the United States, also known as WOTUS, and to prevent ongoing court cases from interfering in that process, federal agencies have proposed to delay the effective date of that controversial WOTUS rule by two years. Julie Jensen is Sacramento County's Agricultural Commissioner. She recently told the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors that that delay in the change of WOTUS rules still has farmers confused as far as what to do. The issue of WOTUS, which is Waters of the U.S., began in 1972 with the passage of the Clean Water Act, and it continues today. Most recently, President Trump issued an executive order uh, revising or rescinding the 2015 rule. But until they get a new rule promulgated, Growers are stuck with trying to interpret a federal court decision to know whether a federal permit is required on their land. So the saga of WOTUS continues. As you can see, being a farmer doesn't just mean sticking a seed in the ground and putting water on it. There's a lot more to it than that. The American Farm Bureau Federation calls the reduction in size of two national monuments earlier this week a return of common sense to environmental stewardship. AFBF Congressional Relations Director Ryan Yates says the announcement reduces restricted use of federal lands. President Trump announced boundary changes 
two national monuments, the Bears Ears National Monument, which was designated in the last months of the Obama administration, and the Grand Staircase Escalon, designated in 1996, both of which carry a great deal of controversy from their original designations as how those designations ultimately were received at the time. The two designations have historically impacted agriculture in a negative way. As it pertains to agriculture, you had historic grazing rights that were eliminated with the stroke of a pen. It's an inappropriate way to manage. The sheer size of just the land monuments in the last administration are roughly the size of New Hampshire. We should be involving the public in those decisions, and we need to understand that there are human needs that need to be respected, and those historic uses should be balanced across that landscape. Moving forward, Yates says any decision to designate a national monument should go through a public process and require a balance of use. Any decision should be based in law, and it should go through a public process to ensure that all uses are respected and available for the public on their public lands. Michael Clements, Washington. Swine producers. If you come across these symptoms in your animals, blisters and lameness on the skin and around the feet, you need to have them tested right away, according to USDA Chief Veterinarian Jack Share. This will determine if infected animals have Seneca virus A. Seneca virus A is in the U.S. It's widely distributed now, so we consider it endemic. Yet it creates little or no impact on swine. However, the symptoms of Seneca virus A mimic a more threatening zoonotic disease. Foot and mouth disease. As a matter of fact, the lesions are very similar and the symptoms are similar. And unlike Seneca virus A, if FMD is found in the U.S., then this could create significant economic impacts to the livestock industry by a closed export markets to prevent the spread of this fatal disease. And because symptoms of SVA and foot and mouth disease are so similar... We've had some issues with it in the swine industry as far as seeing these lesions at slaughter on the farms and in the market channels. So we have to stop those movements. We have to test those animals and make sure that they do have Seneca virus A and they do not have foot and mouth disease. Cher says wine producers and veterinarians need to be vigilant in identifying animals with SVA symptoms, which means immediate contact with animal health officials, including technicians with USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. When this is seen in different market channels or on the farm by accredited vets, they would report these blisters to either their state veterinarian or any regulatory official in that state or to the federal service. And we would send out trained foreign animal disease diagnosticians to go out and get the samples, those animals would be held and not be allowed to move until we got the test results back. The chief veterinarian admits this increase in testing to rule out FMD in swine creates resource drains and logistical headaches for both regulatory officials and producers and processors alike, especially in major hog producing states. However, it's extremely important, which all the states have taken it very seriously. They've all entered into a process where they hold the animals until that testing can be done and the animals can be assured that they don't have foot and mouth disease and they can move. So Share closes with this call for all involved in the hog production chain to be on the lookout for Seneca virus A. We do need help from everyone and an awareness that that's out there and them to work with us to report the disease, the virus if they see it, and to get proper testing done so that we can minimize its impact. Bob Rodbain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Northern Salinas Valley seawater intrusion is almost certainly worse now than it was two years ago. That according to a 
a report in the Monterey Herald. The Monterey County Water Resources Agency board members called for an expedited response to the worsening problem. After agency staff predicted continued growth over the last two years of islands of salty water that would impinge on critical underground fresh water supplies in parts of the agriculture-rich valley, Water Agency board members said there needs to be rapid action to head off potentially irreversible damage to those underground supplies. Board member Deidre Sullivan said worsening seawater intrusion is a crisis threatening a community resource and must be dealt with urgently. She called for rapid adoption of a moratorium on new wells in the affected parts of the Salinas Valley. At this moment, this scene from the movie A Christmas Story is being played out for real by millions of families on Christmas tree lots across the country. Okay, now here's a tree. Haven't you got a big tree? Yeah. <laughs> now here's a tree. This here is a tree. Don't you think it's a little Christmas only comes once a year. Why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah. Coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA, we explore the past, present, and future of the real Christmas tree industry. I'm Gary Crawford. And that's how it sounded just a few days ago at the White House, the big Christmas tree for the Blue Room being brought up to the house by horse-drawn wagon, the tree being received by the First Lady. And as in millions of other houses, the tree will be set up and decorated and be a source of beauty for many weeks. No one knows exactly, though, how this tree edition of decorating an evergreen tree got started, but one story is called... The blessing of the fir tree. Agriculture Department historical expert Ann Effland says this story goes back well before the 1500s. It goes back to the early 700s in Germany, where the pagan druid tribes who believed trees had spirits would decorate oak trees. And uh, when St. Boniface was converting those tribes, he felled an oak tree to prove that it didn't have a spirit in it. And in the process, it knocked over all of the trees in its path except for a small fir tree which survived and the, the legend is that he uh, blessed that fir tree as uh, a special symbol of God's blessing because it survived the fall of the oak and from then on then this Christmas tree has been associated with Christian spirituality. And in this country it has flourished as a tradition and also as a major business enterprise. On average, Americans spend just over a billion dollars every year to buy about 27 million trees grown in the United States. Now, these numbers have not changed that much in several years. And in fact, fake plastic trees from China and elsewhere have been hurting the sales of real trees. And songs like this are not helping. The first thing at Christmas that's such a pain to me is finding a Christmas tree. Yes, some see it as a hassle, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can be homebound or just pressed for time or whatever. There's an opportunity out there for everyone. Tom Dahl is a tree farmer in Indiana, and he says you don't have to leave your home to get a real tree. You can order by mail or online. There are even a few businesses that will come to people's homes. Bring in a real Christmas tree, set it up. They'll even decorate it. And then the same company will come back and take it down and dispose of it. But my family loves to go to a cut-your-own-Christmas-tree farm every year, and here we go. Yes, we are once again at Evergreen Acres in Noakesville, Virginia, near my home in Manassas, Virginia. The owner, Jim Gelson, who's always here to welcome his customers, new and old. They like what I do here. They like the atmosphere and they like the, the shape of the trees and everything. 
you treat people right, and they'll, they'll come back. Oh, and they certainly do. I've got some people that came that have been out here for 23 years. Yeah, we've been coming here for years. Michael and his family are here. They're about ready to head out and find that perfect tree. And Michael, uh, you are definitely a fan of uh, real trees, not those plastic trees, right? Yeah, I just love it. Love the smell of uh, fresh cut trees, so we keep doing it. Oh, and we've got a big uh, family group here. How many folks with you guys? Uh, eight of us. Oh, yeah, they brought the dogs, too. Another customer here, Dave and his daughter, Mari. Hey, they've just come back with their tree. Oh, Mari, now, what, what are you going to do with that beautiful tree? Huh? Um, we're going to put it inside our living room and decorate it with um, ornaments. But, you know, some people evidently don't want to wait to decorate their tree. We did have one get decorated in the park a lot the other day. <laughs> Chris Gray helps out here at the farm every season. I guess they were in a hurry to get it decorated. They decorated it and took pictures down the park a lot. And they put it in the back of a pickup truck and closed the top and off they went. <laughs> wow. Now, most folks ride up to where the trees are on the wagon behind the tractor and they come back with their trees the same way. But, uh, hey, you guys there, I saw you, you saw you dragging that big tree on foot back here. That's a long way. You didn't take the tractor ride? No, no. 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 I actually like carrying the tree back from the field. So. And you know it's fresh. <laughs> but you may not be. Is this your first time coming to a farm to get your tree? Yes. You going to come back? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Definite, definite. <laughs> and now they're handing that tree over to Chris and the gang where they put it in the uh, shaking machine and they bail it up while we enjoy some hot cider. Okay, uh, here's a bunch of heading off the, uh, on the tractor. We rehearsed this, so gang, here goes one, two, three. Oh, wonderful. Well, this has been Agriculture USA, and from Evergreen Acres in Noakesville, Virginia, this is... Oh, you know what? I think it is starting to snow. Hmm. Anyway, this is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Scientists are probing the sex life of the Asian citrus psyllid. In a discovery that could help citrus growers fight a dangerous pest, UC scientists say they have identified the sex pheromone of the Asian citrus psyllid. The psyllid can spread a plant disease that kills citrus trees, Wang Long Bing, and has been found in southern and central California. Pest experts say the development holds promise for both preventing the spread of the psyllid as well as aiding in its control. Breakfast. Many say it's the most important meal of the day. And one USDA researcher says it may be the perfect example of how important agriculture department scientific and technological achievements and emerging studies are in assuring safety, quality, and nutrition to your breakfast table every morning. Americans have the safest food supply in the world, and it's largely due to the research of the USDA and other agencies and partners. The Associate Administrator of the Agricultural Research Service, Steve Schaefer, joins me, Rod Bain, for a look at your breakfast table from a science and tech standpoint in this edition of Agriculture USA. It was right in front of him. Agricultural Research Service Associate Administrator Steve Schaefer was considering how to present to a USDA Ag Outlook Forum audience this year how the many science and research entities connected to the Agriculture Department, ARS, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, land-grant universities and related cooperative extension, and private partners come together to advance food safety, quality, even nutrition through advanced science and technology. The answer was on his breakfast table. I was thinking about this one morning while I was eating my breakfast and I was looking at it, I was thinking there's a lot of science and technology development behind what I've got right in front of me here. Take your glass of orange juice, for example, and how researchers are studying ways to combat the threat of citrus greening 
and the threat of not having orange juice every morning. Lots of different technologies for detecting the pathogen using genetic techniques. We've even trained dogs. Dogs can detect infected trees that are without symptoms. 99% effectiveness. Lots of research to figure out how to interfere with how the pathogen is picked up and carried by the vector. If you had fresh fruit, you may not realize how long it takes to develop new varieties that are better tasting or disease resistant, among other such traits. Now we've got Fast Track, and this has been developed with plums, but it shows promise with other fruits as well. Basically, it takes a gene out of poplar, which causes the plum plant to begin to fruit and flower and fruits on the same branches continuously. And after you get the trait, you can do all sorts of crosses very quickly, get it down to one generation per year rather than one generation per five or six years. Now, an omelet has many ingredients, from eggs and cheese to fresh vegetables and meat products. Schaefer says from the egg and poultry perspective, research is studying natural alternatives to antibiotics to counter antibiotic-resistant bacteria. One example of this? Common environmental bacterium, B. subtilis, acts as a probiotic. Organic forms of selenium, extracts of all sorts of plants, chili peppers and cinnamon and aloe vera and green tea and so forth will inhibit these organisms as an easy form of antibiotic effect that can be used in many different situations around the world. And if your omelet has peppers among its ingredients... There's a lot of genetic variability in pepper. We're exploiting it for breeding all sorts of interesting traits into peppers to improve them and to extend shelf life. Lots of chemical, biological, genetic research going into this, all to make your omelet look and taste better. Perhaps the most popular breakfast food at your table, and the table of others as well, is bacon. Yet your bacon supply would be threatened if an outbreak of foot and mouth disease ever occurred in our nation a disease that would threaten U.S. hog and pig populations. Schaefer says scientists work vigilantly to assure this does not happen. He says a current vaccine for FMD consists of a highly virulent virus. So, USDA scientists have developed what's called a leaderless vaccine. It strips a segment of the genetic material out of the virus, and as a result, the virus can't replicate the same way and cause infectious disease in the animal, but it still stimulates the immune response. And as a result, you can give the animals this vaccine. It's also got a sequence in it that you can tell an animal that's infected by the real pathogen from one that's only gotten the vaccine. That's a huge advantage in a quarantine operation. Another issue with pigs, from an environmental point of view, is manure. Schaefer says ARS and his partners have developed a suite of techniques to recover nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus that can be used in a farmer's field as fertilizer and improve water discharge to meet state environmental standards. A full-size demonstration of this suite handles daily 75,000 gallons of swine manure. A lot, according to Schaefer. And we're working to make this into a commercial scale and make sure that your bacon comes to you without an environmental footprint, or at least as small as one as possible. Now, of course, you probably have other yummy foods, items that are benefiting from USDA advances in science and technology. Go back into the 40s, have a turkey for Thanksgiving. Probably the biggest challenge you had was it was hard to get the darn thing in the oven of the day. The turkeys were great big things. And ovens weren't so big. So ARS researcher Stanley Marsden in the early 1940s bred what became known as the Beltsville small white turkey variety, a bird that could fit most oven and refrigerators of the day, had more white meat and white pin feathers. Schaefer says this breed of turkey is not consumed much these days. However, the genetics behind this are behind just about every turkey or turkey product that you eat. Love potatoes for breakfast? Say hash browns or home fries? Schaefer talks about a joint project with ARS and its partners to help growers grow more potatoes and make better decisions with their crop, 
what is called a potato systems planner. And it tells you if you put in there what crops you want to grow and in what order and what kind of fertilizers you're using and what your soil type is and some other measurements, it will help you project what your next potato crop will yield and some of the economic benefits of this. We talk about sustainability. It's these kinds of tools that integrate the physical, chemical, biological, environmental, and economics that will tell us what's an effective way to manage a potato crop in, in a sustainable way. Did you drink your milk at breakfast time or enjoy a yogurt? Schaefer says research has led to more milk production and therefore more dairy products over time. Between 1960 and 2007, the United States produced about a third more milk with half as many cows. That's the result of genetic selection. And for a number of years, that was based on pedigree analysis, which is great, but it's also difficult. In more recent years, it's genomics and genetic markers and techniques to identify DNA sequences. And for those who may be lactose intolerant. The ARS lab in Winmore, Pennsylvania figured out how to break down lactose in milk to galactose and glucose, and now you have lactate. Many of us enjoy a piece of toast, a biscuit, bagel, or English muffin as part of our breakfast. Schaefer says a major threat to wheat and all these products being available at our breakfast table is stem rust. In particular, the UG99 variety that threatens crops worldwide. It's not in the United States. We really want to keep it that way. USDA scientists are working on the genetics of the pathogen, the genetics of the host, constantly looking for new varieties, looking for genes for resistance in wheat's wild relatives, working with our overseas partners to screen wheat varieties in places where the pathogen is indigenous, and working with foreign countries to identify those wheat varieties that will keep the wheat coming. We don't eat pollinators like bees for breakfast, but Schaefer says without them, our breakfast menu would be boring at best. Almost everything else on your breakfast table is going to be insect pollinated, including the forages and animal feed that would go into the livestock to make the meat. USDA is part of a global collaborative effort to address pollinator issues, like colony collapse disorder. Even the White House has gotten involved and in, tasked the agencies with having a, a pollinator research action plan. In USDA, we go after the five Ps, parasites, pathogens, pests, pesticides, and poor nutrition. And we've got research efforts in all of that. And for some of us, there is coffee. Now, not much is grown in the U.S. Hawaii and Puerto Rico, though, are coffee producers. Their crops, though, our coffee, are threatened by the insect known as the coffee berry borer. Schaefer says a variety of integrated pest management systems are being used against this insect with most recent research on biological control of the pest focusing on gut microbes because the microbes in the lining of the insect's digestive tract help it digest and break down caffeine. So if it can't do that, the caffeine is toxic and the insects can't digest the coffee and they croak. It's one of the many examples of how USDA research in its many forms provides a safe, nutritious, and delicious breakfast every morning. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.